Julian Clary. You know, all very distinct voices. I think you need a distinct voice to... Did I tell you that I got married to Julian Clary? I'm pretty sure I told you this. No. Have I not told you this? No, this is another one of those where you drop a celebrity into it. I married Julian Clary once. Why and how? (laughs) And are you still married? (laughs) There's photos. I'll send them to you. Um, Are you married Julian Clary? Was this legal? I'm not even joking. I was on... Right, so we went to... My mum and I... Oh, yeah, I thought your mum would be involved. Yeah, I went to... I'm pretty sure I told you that. I've definitely told someone this recently. Um, So I was... We were watching Julian Clary, stand-up. And uh, the whole premise of the show was to... um, uh, For him to find a husband. He was getting on later in life and he was just like, right, I'm going to find a husband. So I'm touring the country and I'm going to set up some challenges for for people that I choose. So I'm going to choose... Uh, I think it was seven people out of the audience and then we're going to narrow it down like one by one by one until finally I, I get, get married. married. So won. he's going around the room. Yeah, oh, look at no. you. Hidden depth. So we, he was going around the room and uh, I was right at the front, but right in the front, the left-hand side mm. uh, as you're looking out. And uh, so he's going around in a, in, a, in a circle and he kind of gets to me. And he's like, oh, yeah, you, you as well. Like, come up here. I think he's kind of run out of people and I happen to be there. So anyway, um, pulled me up and, and, and set these challenges. And one by one, they got knocked out, knocked down and um, got down to the to the last one. I can't even remember what it was. I remember I was on my pant in my pants at one point on stage. Oh, so he molested um, you in front of an audience. Hey up. I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story takes place in the Georgian era. We've been here before. We have. Daniel Mendoza said in his own autobiography that he was born on July 5th, 1764. This is not true. And it is the first of many examples of Daniel getting dates wrong, which is a bit of an issue if you're writing an autobiography. Yeah, and if you're studying or trying to write this episode, I can imagine it's quite hard. Luckily, someone wrote a book about it. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Done the legwork. Somebody else has done the legwork, and they will get their due at the end, don't you worry. Wonderful. Based on the fact that the records of the Bevismark Synagogue in Oldgate, London, give the dates of his bris, or circumcision as the 12th of july 1765 it is, oh, is far... that what it's called yeah didn't know that. did you never watch um south park well i did yeah but i just i didn't take that word in so it's bris b-r-i-s bris bris but the date Do... of daniel's bris was the 12th of july so it's far more likely that he was born on july 5th 1765 as traditionally and i learned this while writing a bris takes place on the eighth day after a jewish boy is born Ah, okay. You know, I mean, I guess for medical complications or if there's a bit of a scheduling issue, one or two days, fair enough. But to miss out on giving your child his bris for over a year, it's, I mean, it's very relaxed for parents, isn't it? Do you know what the religious reason is for it? I do not. No, I don't. I I wasn't going to embrace you all with some knowledge there. I was just asking. No, I, I don't know why. I imagine... It's cl- it's considered cleaner than having a foreskin, but I mean I'm happy to be educated on that. Mm, I don't know. Write in. Anyway, a little bit of a history of the Jews in Britain. Following the expulsion of the Jews from the country by Edward the First's act of expulsion, because he was not just the hammer of the Welsh and the hammer of the Scots, he was also apparently the hammer of the Jews. There had been a period of around three hundred and fifty years where it was technically illegal uh, to be a practicing Jew on our British Isles, which is it's mind-boggling, isn't it, when you think about how multicultural our country is now? It's not... Um, the Jewish faith slash community have not had a good run, have they, in the in on the world stage? Um, I don't... I mean, I, I, I don't know if I've ever met a Jewish person. I must have done. You will have done. Um, yeah. I must have done. I just, it's its mad how, how they have been treated so poorly. Well, to be fair, 
I mean, expelling them from the country by that point, it was more of a blessing than a curse for the Jewish people because by the time the expulsion came around, most Jews had actually left anyway because Mm. being as they were very industrious people, very insular people who sort of helped each other out in order to, you know, support other people's businesses taking off, the crown used them as a bit of a piggy bank for many years before Edward finally got rid of them. And basically they just said, well... Anytime we need money, we'll just raise a one-off um, levy on the Jewish population to pay a tax. They're normally good for it. And we know that if we give them another 10, 15 years, they'll have recouped that money, made a lot more, and then we can tax them again. So surely they just stitched themselves up by like telling them to leave? Because yeah, but, they had no one to tax now? Yeah, he needed a scapegoat. And because, right. you know, everybody, the, the sort of idea of... Um, the Jewish community being quite a small community, but a very wealthy community was already firmly entrenched. It was like, well, if we get rid of them, we can, you know, all that money will circle back into the rest of the community. You'll mm. all be much richer. I think it's so true. deeply rooted, isn't it? If you're saying, what was that, 13? Uh, they were expelled in 1290. 1290. So that um, that view has been so deeply embedded in the country forever then um uh, a lot of people still have those views oh yes i'm sure definitely and this this will surprise you the jews were finally invited back into the country by uh, is this a significant date no um, um not not the date the person oh god is it no tell me oliver cromwell because basically he had to he'd made an enemy of practically all the catholics in europe and he needed to try and bring money into his new british republic so he'd he'd alienated the irish he'd alienated the scots he'd alienated the french or you know all the people around us and he's Mm. like well how am i going to bring money in because i need money to finance the armies to finance the navy to finance everything else that i'm going to have to you know build up in order to keep what i've won so like, didn't we didn't we used to have people here who who could make a lot of money because it would be great to have them back hmm and luckily there was yet another sort of europe-wide pogrom going on so it's the perfect thing to go no we'll give you amnesty just come over here with all of your money um yes and then we do have some entry taxes um, you know, we have housing duty, stamp duty. We have, you know, there's there's lots of taxes is what I'm saying. But at least we won't kill you. So come yeah. on over. Come on over. We need your dollar. Yeah. Daniel's great, great grandparents had taken Cromwell upon his very generous offer to, you know, protection, essentially. Moving yeah. from the Iberian Peninsula to East London. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, yeah, fine. So from a sort of tropical beautiful sunshine quite arid but quite beautiful in its way sparse landscape to east london yeah. which you imagine was one hell of a culture shock yeah, well, yeah it would be it's yeah poor family daniel grew up on the lower rungs of the emerging merchant class his dad owned either a small shop or two market stalls history okay. is not sure which is it what is this because the chap lies? Uh, well, it's because he lies. It's because he wasn't particularly, he was quite vague about what his dad did. We knew his dad was a shopkeeper of some kind. Mm. But as far as I'm concerned, I feel like a small shop is equivalent to two market stalls. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's yeah. neither here nor there. I'd, I'd, mm-hmm. If somebody told me that they owned a small shop and another guy told me that they owned two market stalls, I'd imagine them to be equal in terms of their footing. Yeah. You know? Do we know what the shop sells? Uh, no, we don't, although I think it was fruit, based oh, on um, some of his later ventures. Nice, nice. Daniel did okay at school. He learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, mm. and was also apparently rather good at Hebrew, which is yeah. a boon for a young Jewish lad. Absolutely. However, none of these really played into what he wanted to do with his life, because he wanted to be, with every fibre of his being, a biscuit maker. Okay. That was his life goal. He wanted to make biscuits. Oh, I mean, don't tell me just now, because I'm sure you'll get onto this, but is it a biscuit brand that I will know? Some dreams go unfulfilled. Okay. Unfortunately. Oh, I was getting excited then. I was like, is this Jacob's 
crackers or something. Well, I know that's not a biscuit, but... The thing is, when it came time to leave education, it was probably a stretch to think that, uh, you know, a biscuit maker would be looking for an apprentice. Uh, mm. So just before the age of 13, as there were no biscuit makers available, Daniel, he took a job as an apprentice to a glass cutter in London. Okay, yeah. It's a good good job, I assume. You make fair old money. Mm. I, I could imagine it's quite hard. Mm. No, that's glass blowing, cutting. Well, I, I, mm. I mean, if you make a mistake glass cutting, I'm guessing it, it's quite a costly one. Because glass yeah. would have been very, you know, still been relatively expensive to make back in the, you know, mid-Georgian era. Yeah, yeah. Didn't really matter to Daniel because he lasted less than a month in his new mm-hmm. career before the son of the glass cutter offended him with his, and this is a direct quote, haughty disposition. <laughs> so Daniel Mendoza decided to teach him some manners via a severe thrashing. Mm, he yes, the only way to do it, yes. Ten bells out of this person. And when he says haughty manner, I think it was just something around the son felt that he could um, order Daniel around like his father was doing. And Daniel right. took offence to this and went, actually, no, he's my boss. You are just some guy. Mm. And I'm well within my rights to soundly thrash you. Yeah, okay. He decided to resign before he was fired. <laughs> wise, wise. Yeah. Daniel found another position as an assistant greengrocer, which is why I think the family business might have been. Ah, uh, okay. There's the link. You know, because he could. Oh well, you know, I helped out my dad's stall, and he he sold veg, so yeah. I can sell your veg. <laughs> I know the names of all of them. There's a there's a green fruit, and there's a there's a yellow fruit over there. So I, I'm I'm good. I know these things. He found the family much more agreeable, the greengrocer's family. However, yeah. the anti-Semitic insults he experienced in a customer-facing position were not something he was going to take lying down. Okay. He began challenging each and every racist to a fight. And although he always won, it turned out that seeing people left in a bloody heap next to the fruit and veg stall wasn't good for business. And Daniel okay. was gently moved on again. Yeah, I, do you want a side of blooded person with your potatoes sir i mean there's no question he was in the right in this but it's the you know the aesthetic of just this pile of ever 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 growing pile of bodies in the corner just well i mean good for him for standing up for himself because i'm sure it was a constant obviously he's getting some some racist abuse yes how do they know he's jewish um i'm guessing with the surname mendoza but in terms of his looks um, I mean, obviously, there is a Jewish look. I think we he, can say he that. Had, uh, well, I don't a... know if it was Jewish so much as he had a foreign look because that Iberian okay. sort of olive skin, you know, the yeah. dark black hair was still very much present in Daniel. So whether right, whether yeah. they were abusing him because he was Jewish or because he was clearly foreign, not quite sure. But either way, who's like, I'm not, I don't have to take this. Mm, I'm just trying to sell yeah. you a cauliflower. You want to do that? I'm going to knock <laughs> you the sod out. I mean, yeah, good for him. So this was a, uh, 1780, which for reference, he's 15 years old at the time. And he's on to his third job. <laughs> he's, um, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a lad, though, isn't he, at that age? Yeah, but he's, he's gone for his third job and he's thought, do you know what, to assimilate with the Brits, I know what I need to do. And he took a job with a tea dealer. Okay. Which was, a, it wasn't just a good job, it was a big step up at the time because tea was considered one of the most luxury luxury items this was partially yeah, I would, it would be well it's always yeah. been you know quintessential but at the time at the time the tax on it was 117 percent meaning yeah. that only the wealthiest could afford it so when you were buying your tea over half of the cost of that tea was in just the taxes that you had to pay to the government for the privilege of buying the tea jesus so he's working he's happy in his tea shop I imagine it's sort of low ceilings, dark, very rich, very opulent. And one morning, a porter came in who was dropping off a chest Mm. of tea. Checks out, he's working in a tea shop. And he decided to challenge the elderly tea merchant to a fight over a supposed debt he owed. Okay. The porter was in his 30s and strong. So Daniel, he was like, my boss, he's 75. He's got a limp. 
there's no way I'm letting him take up this challenge. I shall act as his champion. I shall, at the age of 15, step into the breach and I shall protect the honour of my boss. He's a bold chap, isn't he? Mm. But unlike his previous fights, which have been down and dirty street fights, this time the porter sought to make the contest legitimate by insisting that a ring was drawn in the dirt and that both men found seconds to ensure that there was no cheating. So he okay, set so up... just got profesh. Yeah, an impromptu boxing match is what he set up. Yeah. Now, it was a quirk of fate that a boxing teacher called Richard Humphreys just so happened to be passing by, possibly in the mood to buy some tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always looking for a talent. He's always, you know, on the make, seeing if he can... Local prospects. And he agreed to second for Mendoza. Now, let's see what okay. the kid's got. Okay, yeah. A crowd quickly formed, and a hat was passed around to collect some money that could be given to the winner, which is a lovely thing, considering this is around a debt. At some point, they must have had enough money that if Mendoza had thought of it, he could have gone, well, why don't you just take the winnings? I'll I'll concede, you take the winnings, the debt's off, we can go about our day. Mm, yeah, it's honour, though, isn't it? And men get very uh, stupid. I imagine he'd already stripped like down this. to his pantaloons and oiled himself, and he was like, well, actually, I'm here now. <laughs> I'm ready well. to go. <laughs> Gentlemen? <laughs> the semi-official bare-knuckle boxing match lasted around 45 minutes. Jesus. The porter was definitely bigger and definitely stronger, but Daniel was quicker, and he skillfully evaded the larger man, letting him waste his strength trying to connect with haymakers. In contrast, Daniel apparently picked his spots, unleashing a lightning-fast straight jab, ensuring that he was causing maximum damage with minimum sort of energy outlay. So That must have been exhausted, though, 45 minutes of that. And he's, I suppose if he's younger, then he's got more energy anyway. But also, the big guy was just going out swinging, and when Mendoza punched, it was just one straight punch. He'd hit him and then he'd back off again and allow this guy to lumber after him and swing and swing and swing. So he really innately kind of understood how to beat a larger opponent. Yeah. He won the purse after 45 minutes Mm -hmm. and he'd impressed Richard Humphreys to the point where Richard told him there and then, you, Daniel, you need to take up prize fighting. This tea merchant business, no. No. It's not for you. You want to make the big money? You want to be famous? Come and see me. I'll set you right. Daniel declined. <laughs> I but, want to be a tea maker, sir. Oh, no, no, no. He didn't want to be a tea maker. He, he actually turned around to this guy and went, no, no, no. I'm going to be a biscuit maker. I've not given up on my dream yet. So he's gone back to this biscuit making. That, oh, I love a biscuit. Yeah. I, do you know what? I would really love a ginger nut around about now. I don't have any, so I can't. I can't eat and this may be controversial. But what I like to do is I like to leave the ginger nuts out for a couple of days so they go slightly soft. Do you know I quite like that with um, some crisps as well. So you know you get the I don't know the cheese balls and the like chip sticks. Oh yeah, yeah. You if like you've left soft. them out, yeah, man. You must be great hoovered up after parties. You know, like the the morning after, and there's just you happily <laughs> munching down on everything. Yeah. But no, Daniel, he's like, okay, I've just literally been handed a hat full of money for less than an hour's work. But no. Give me some biscuits, Dennis. I still believe I can be a biscuit maker. I've never made a biscuit. As far as I know, he'd never actually gone to the trouble of making a biscuit to this point. He just believed in his heart. That's what he was put on this earth to do. It was a dream, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And obviously boxing would be a distraction from the biscuit making that he's not currently doing. So he said, no, thank you, Humphreys, but no. Humphreys, however, was not the kind of man who'd take no for an answer. And it was possible, highly likely, that he was the person who talked Daniel's friends into arranging another prize fight without uh, Mendoza's knowledge. Okay. So, basically... They, so he's arranged a fight for... For Mendoza, him. but he hasn't told him yet. He's right. like, well, we'll just... We'll, it'll be a lovely surprise for him. He'd organised it, though, for a Saturday, which, as you know, is the Jewish Sabbath. Yes. In is the, it? I didn't know that. Okay, so for, as far as I understand it, they celebrate the Sabbath on the Saturday rather than the Sunday. Okay, fine. I mean, it seems a... And you're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath, obviously. So it's, How does that work in modern day times? I always thought this. It depends so how um, 
how fundamental you are with it, but there are some um, sects of Judaism where they literally, they won't use electricity on the Saturday. They won't do anything that even resembles work on the Saturday. And they're really, really strict with it. Whereas other people are just like, well, you know, just do things for yourself on a Saturday. That's what that means. I don't want to do anything on a Saturday or a Sunday Mm. or a Monday. (laughs) (laughs) This is where you need to join multiple religions and slowly work out when the various holy days are. So your entire calendar is like, oh, I'm sorry. It's, you know, Mm, I'd love to work, but being as I am um, a member of all religions... I have to observe every single religious holiday, and there are a lot. Do you, do you reckon Universal Credit would get on board with that? They'd be like, "No, get to work." What would you, pantheism? Yeah, I believe in everything, even the stuff mm. that contradicts the other stuff. So I'm yeah. afraid I'm I believe off. in it all. Yep. Yep. Sorry, guys. But as more preparation time had gone into this second bout, the prize purse was significantly larger because it was, you know not just a whip round with a hat people were sort of paying to come and witness the fight officially there was a lot of gambling linked to it so it sounds like it's uh it's gone from a little street brawl to obviously him not wanting to do it and then it getting it's it's kind of upped the ante a little bit so it's got a bit more profesh kind of you get the feeling that what happened is it was all set up and Mendoza's mates were just like, oh, well, why don't we go down for a little walk down to the park? And they walk down to the park and there's this sort of ring marked out on the grass and there's <laughs> groups of people around like, oh, oh, he's, he seems to be calling your name, Daniel. I think he's calling you out for a fight. Oh, you might as well get into a state of undress. Yes, you may as well take off your top, oil yourself up and just crawl under that rope and maybe maybe beat him up for a few minutes. That would be fantastic. For us, otherwise there's going to be a crowd who are going to riot and they're going to hold us responsible. So save our lives, Daniel, if you wouldn't mind. (laughs) It's all on you. The man Mendoza fought was either Thomas Wilson or the much better named Harry the Coal Heaver. (laughs) That's a brilliant name. I believe it's just because he lugged coal around. Um, Mm. Either way, Richard Humphreys was in his corner again and Mendoza won against a larger man in just over an hour this time. So he's had to work a little bit longer. Oh, it's too long, isn't it? Unfortunately, he was only able to enjoy his winnings for a little under 10 hours before being sacked by the tea merchant. Okay. Because um, I believe the tea merchant, having seen him fight in what were essentially two prize fights rather than coming to work, was like, I, f- <sighs> I feel like I can't rely on you anymore. Also, you bring in you know, a lot of big, scary guys... To my to my tea my tea shop and I'm an elderly tea seller. I I have a product that is worth more than gold, and you're bringing a lot of thuggish looking men directly to my door. I feel like I need to go a different way. Yeah. Okay. I think that's fair. So Daniel, he checked the classifieds, and he was disappointed oh, to learn that there were still no openings for a biscuit maker. He, I I admire that he's not just giving up no because most people would be like meh so if at any point of this story someone had gone daniel you know do you want to come and learn how to make a viennese whirl that would have been it this story would stop at that point he'd be like i like a viennese whirl let's go finally did you i mean what did you want to be as a child did you not a child like a teenager did you pursue that dream i wanted to be a footballer Uh, do you play football sometimes yeah i i got Mm. to the point where i had trials for liverpool football club no way. And I went to the training facility and I did a trial there. And it was painfully obvious from week one that I did not have the right stuff. I was good. I was not but Liverpool the, Football Club good. They were something else. Yeah. It was, to be honest, I was in awe of what I was seeing. And it was like, yeah, I can't compete with this. Well, at least you gave it a go. Uh, yeah, I got, to, I got to that stage. It's further than some people thing. get. So, yeah. yeah, definitely. So anyway, he's not a biscuit maker. He can't do it. Okay. There's no jobs going. So he instead took a job as a travelling tobacco salesman. Okay, I can see where the two are linked. Yeah, yeah. There's transferable skills, probably. Yeah. He's he's working around the biscuit region of work, but he's not quite Mm. managed to make his way to the heart of it. I mean, he could roll cigarettes. That's a making of... He's making something. 
something. Yeah. yeah. Rather than when he was a tea merchant where he was just moving things. Now he's actually actively making a product. I mean, he might have been brewing the tea for people as well, so therefore mm-hmm. he would have been making it. These are all transferable skills for his CV. Yeah. Well, he was in Chatham, in Kent, trying mm. to score a large order from the naval dockyard when he was confronted by a sergeant who was carrying a halberd. Carrying what? Sorry. A halberd. So, What's you know, that? the um, it's, it looks like a sort of... It's akin to a spear, but it's more sort of like the bastard child of a spear and an axe, I think is the best okay. way of describing it. <laughs> Fine. I've just given it eyes with my head. Mm. Well, you can search for it on Google at your leisure, but I think, you know, a bit like a spear, a bit like an axe is a good way okay. of describing it. It was, you know, just a weapon that a, was used a spax. in the infantry. Yeah, a spax. It's a spax. A spax, yeah. The sergeant told Mendoza to leave in a way that, Mendoza took offence to. Hmm. And because he took offence, he thought, sod it, I'm going to challenge you to a fight, sergeant with a weapon. <laughs> I will fight you, sir. Now, the sergeant, he was a strapping six-foot bloke, and he saw that Mendoza yeah. was only five foot seven, that he also weighed a lot less than him. And he thought, you know what, this is an opportunity to show my men that I'm all man, that yeah. I am worthy of leading them. And he accepted the challenge. Good. So, you know, he, he put down the halberd, luckily, because I think it would have been mm. a very one-sided fight if he decided that that was free and legal. <laughs> he's brave challenging someone that's holding a spax. A weapon. No, not just yeah. holding a weapon, but has a full sort of, you know, there's two dozen men stood behind him who he can command, and he's going, mm. fuck are you looking at? Come on. Fists, fists at dawn. Come on, sir. Fists, fisticuffs. Mendoza won within an hour and was rewarded with a large amount of orders from the press troops because pretty much everyone who just watched their sergeant, you know, have his arse handed to him. They were like, oh, yeah, do you know what? I'll buy some tobacco from you, mate. Come on. You've earned it. What the fuck? He, that guy's never going to live that down, is he? No. He's a small Jewish tobacco salesman turned up on his patch and then just, just... beating 10 bells out of him. Yeah, I think he, he resigned from the army in disgrace and became a drunk like that day. Yeah, I mean, you would. But Mendoza, he didn't just get the good sales. He was also gifted five guineas from an officer who had watched the entire spectacle and had not thought to step in at any point. (laughs) Is he going to add it to his biscuit? His biscuit fund, yeah. Oh, no, there is a biscuit fund. Yeah, okay. Because if he can't find a job, he's going to self-start a business. This is, I think at this point, the boxing and all of these challenges that he's issuing is like, eventually. (laughs) I'll be able to meet make that beautiful biscuit that yeah, I've always I'll, wanted I'll have to. the start-up cost for my own small business. And as soon as I've <laughs> paid someone to teach me how to actually make a biscuit, I'll be away. Yeah. With his natural gift for selling and a burgeoning boxing career, it seemed that everything was going well for Daniel. But he was also a teenager. Let's not forget, he's only 18 at this point. Yeah. And as a every 18-year-old does, he made some bad decisions. And one of these was to impulsively try and steal a pair of shoes, as we've all done. I mean, yeah. Have you really lived a teenage life in Britain if you haven't tried to ram raid a Clark's at some point? <laughs> it's the high-quality leather. Uh, I mean, they are good shoes. They are very, very well-built shoes. But yeah. the highlight is, and I don't think they do it anymore, when you used to put your foot in the little machine... <gasps> and they measured it. Yeah, and it goes... Yes. Vroom, vroom. They yeah. don't do that now. They do it by hand, which is probably you know more accurate. But it also takes away that futuristic kind of thing that made. Hold Clarks on, wait. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the hand thing. No, the Clark's in like... Southport. You put your foot in it, and it was mechanical, and two little sort of things would move in from the side, and they would measure it that way, and then they'd move out, and then one would come in from the front to measure your toes, and it was all mechanical. It was all done no, by a robot. No, I don't recall that. I remember. This thing that you like, plastic thing that you'd put your foot on. Oh no, they've got that now. Maybe it was just Southport had this. <laughs> Maybe this system. it was the future of the future of footwear in Southport. Well, it's not been adopted, so maybe it was just wildly inaccurate. You know, these robots maybe don't know anything about really, feet. Maybe like the owner had a, like a foot fetish for little children, and like that was actually taking photos of your feet. <sighs> Way to sully one of my. Genuinely happy childhood memories. The trip to Clark's was... It's a thing I remember. I don't remember some of my birthday parties, but I remember the trip to Clark's. Anyway, 
he tried to steal a pair of shoes. He stole the shoes from the pocket of a man called William Forrest. So I have questions here already. A, how the hell would you fit shoes in your pocket? B, why are there shoes in your pocket? And C, how do you get close enough to someone to steal something that large from the out pocket. of someone's pocket? I don't know the answers to the first two. I Believe me, I looked. I'm like, that doesn't seem to be... Even if you are transporting shoes, naturally you put them in some kind of box. Yeah, you wouldn't and just hold them, them in a bag. your pocket. I don't know why William Forrest had shoes in his pocket. Um, Although, when I've bought books and stuff before, I put them in my pocket. So maybe it's were, not Were they hardback books? Big uh, I've got quite books, large... Like a coffee table book, maybe, is a no. good pair of shoes? No, I, yeah, no, you're right. Okay, fine. Anyway, as to your third point, you know, how did he manage to steal those shoes without it being obvious? It was very, very obvious, um, because William Forrest promptly caught him in the act and escorted him to a shop with a light on to ask for help to raise a constable because police weren't as available as they are today no so he took him to a shop and said look can can you run off and get a constable for me i will wait here with the offender pleasingly though the shop was a shoemaker's oh okay <laughs> i don't think it was intentional but it was a shoemaker's which just made That's me laugh so like, funny. Oh, if only daniel you've gone to the shoemaker's you've got all that money you've got those five guineas yeah but he doesn't want to waste well, yeah because he's got to pay for the biscuits money. yeah yeah. Flour doesn't come sh- cheap and sugar. I really want him to fulfill his dream of making biscuits. Yeah. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Mm. Not right now, however, because Mendoza panicked and he picked up a very sharp knife from the workbench. He waved it at Forrest, hoping to scare him enough so that Daniel could escape. But the thing is, knives designed for cutting leather, they tend to be very, very sharp and. Leather is very close to human skin. Yeah. Uh, So Mendoza swinging it, he managed to cut off one of Forrest's fingers. (gasps) No. I don't believe intentionally, but he did. I have a... I'm sorry, I'm going back here a bit, but I have a fourth question now. Okay, about the shoes in the market. How did he know that the shoes were his size? Maybe he was a good judge of feet and he looked down at Forrest... It's like, oh, you look like a 12. I'm a 12. Who the hell has 12 size? 12 size? Size 12 feet. I think my brothers are even bigger than that. My brother has, like, clown feet. Your brother who's my older the same brother. height as you? He's slightly taller than me, but I'm I'm size 7.5. He he has feet that are just sideshow Bob-esque compared to mine. Oh, so your your feet are in proportion with your yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think he's... We're all hobbits, but he best expresses the hobbit form. I mean, is it a convenience or an inconvenience? He rarely falls over. I mean, I Do guess you it's fall over all the time. Okay. Fine. Any gust of wind, and that's me. <laughs> like Mary Poppins blowing in the wind. Yeah, like all those nannies at the start, where she just has them all. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we never know what happens to those nannies. No. They all blow off, and we go ha 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 ha. It's like, well, where are they going to end up? Somewhere in the blooming channel. In Stockport. <laughs> What are we doing here? I left my husband at home. <laughs> he doesn't know how to cook. He'll be dead when I make it back. If only I had different sized feet. But for the heinous crime of stealing someone's shoes, then chopping their finger off. Daniel was sentenced to transportation and he was shoved into a literal slave ship alongside cargo to be traded on the West African coast. Oh, I didn't know they did that to well, non-African people. He wasn't, it was still transportation, so he'd be going over and he'd have to work off his time. As, and know, then he, could, he was allowed to come back. But it was that so it weird like... bit where we'd kind of, we, we'd lost the American colonies, so we couldn't send people there anymore, but we hadn't had the idea of, oh, Australia, there's a place to send people. So there was this weird period of history where we were sending people to Africa as, as uh, another option. And Daniel fits perfectly in there. Mm. And that is the end of the story of Daniel Mendoza. No, it's not. You're fibbing to me. Of course it's not. Because he was back in England after three years, having learned a valuable lesson. From that point on, he would only fight with his fists for money. (laughs) Okay. 
and he would try his best to stay away from criminal activity. Okay. So why is he fighting people? Because um, he's now a convict. So gainful employment is a little bit harder to come by for him. Um, Mm. But he knows he's good at punching people. He's never lost. I mean, that's why he got himself in this position in the first place. No, that was knifey stabby. He's like, I won't knifey stabby, I'll just hitty punchy from now on. One thing leads to another. Unless you've got an iron discipline. Yeah. To celebrate his return from his three-year sabbatical, and still not quite 21, Daniel went to Barnet to watch champion boxer Tom Johnson fight a butcher called Bill Love for the heavyweight Uh, championship of all England. Very good. The match itself apparently was very short, with Tom retaining the title. But on the return journey, Mendoza apparently challenged three separate people to fights for insulting him. He won each one, made a load of money, and announced his return to the British prize-fighting scene. He's obviously got a talent. I'm not sure... He's, he's got I a prefer this a over his biscuit-making talent. Or he might not have a biscuit-making talent. We I have don't know. no it's evidence to suggest that he'd be any good at biscuit-making whatsoever. Yeah. Biscuit-making dream is what he has. Yeah. From this point on, Mendoza's jobs played second string to his boxing career. And although he did still tell people he wanted to make biscuits, it was becoming increasingly clear he didn't really mean it anymore. It was just part of his story. It's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't really mm. want to do this. I, I wanted to make, you know, custard creams. That was my goal. Oh, I love a custard yeah, cream. I have no idea how I ended bon up bon. punching people for money. Mendoza's next fight was against Tom, the tailor, Tyne. Okay. It was the first time he had fought a left-handed boxer, and this, combined with the fact that the tailor was a veteran of over 20 professional bouts, led to Daniel experiencing his first loss after a close-fought 40 minutes. Oh, well, he's done pretty well up to this point, hasn't he? You've got to lose some. You've got to lose at some point, and Tom the Taylor time. Do you know why they called him the Taylor? No. He was oh, because he... Oh, no, no, he wasn't a tailor, was he? He was a shoemaker. I was like, because he chopped the finger no, Tom... off of a tailor. Tom the Taylor time was a tailor. Oh, okay. They were Fine. very literal with their nicknames back in the day. I mean, well, that's where surnames came from originally, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like your job or where you lived. Um, Well, it's Tom the Taylor from Tyne, so... Yeah, he could be Tom Taylor these days. That makes sense. Mendoza reflected that he was not yet fully developed as a man, being only 21. uh, And he decided that he needed to actually start training for fights. And, in his own words, living more temperately. Okay. He put the work in and quickly rattled off two victories against John Matthews, which was a prize fight for money, and a bloke called Richard Dennis, who had just been a man who was stupid enough to insult him in the street. But he still (laughs) counted it towards his victory record. (laughs) This guy... Technically, it's a fight. (laughs) Yeah, he just needs to stop fighting with people. Just calm down. Well, I think that's part of why he was such a good fighter. He had this real big sense of, you know what's right and what's wrong and that gave him the the fire to fight certain people you know if he felt like he'd been wronged by anyone he wasn't going to stop until he'd publicly shown that he was the better man yeah before he could challenge Tyne to a rematch Daniel was himself challenged by a man called William Nelson okay however William Nelson put a stipulation on the fight that in order to fight him uh, Mendoza would have to raise a 20 guinea stake Okay. Which is a bit of a dick move as far as I'm concerned. It's like, you know, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to show you that I'm the better man. And Daniel, of course, because he never turned down the challenge, went, yes, yes. Okay, where shall we fight? It's like, well, first you have to get 20 guineas together, which seems like a stipulation you don't need if it truly was for honour. How much is 20 guineas? Well, guinea guinea was like three quid. So it would have been about 60 quid, which at the time was, you know, it wasn't a small amount for someone to get together, especially someone who technically is still unemployed. Uh, and came old money the is so confusing. Like, I wrote an article about it, and yeah. it, I had pages and pages and pages of notes. Some things, like, multiplied in threes, but then others were, like, in different numbers. It was just mad. It comes across as it was the equivalentness of going... I challenge you to a duel. Bring your dueling pistols to the heath. And then Mendoza having to go, well, I don't own dueling pistols. I'm 
the son of a grocer. And I'm like, well, then you forfeit, and I am the winner. Ha ha ha. Yeah. But luckily, Daniel knew Richard Humphreys, his mentor. And Richard hooked him up with a patron called Mr. Elwood, who graciously offered not only to lend the money for the stake, but also agreed to let Daniel train at his home in Epping Forest. So okay. it, it pays to know people, is what I'm saying. Yeah. If you can't raise the funds, better know a rich guy who can sub you. Daniel refused the offer of a woodland training camp, and Mr. Elwood said that in that case, he wouldn't lend the money. He was so offended. Okay. Richard Humphreys was so embarrassed by the entire thing that he decided that his former protege would now be relegated to enemy for life and began yeah. bad-mouthing Mendoza all over London. In the end, Mendoza borrowed the stake from a different friend and he won the match after an hour and a quarter. Okay. And that... Jesus. So he's won, Long, the, he's won the money, but he's lost a friend in Richard Humphreys. Mm, was it worth it? Well, was it worth it? That's what I want to know. We will find out, because that's not the last we hear of Richard. Mendoza, having won against... Uh, Willie Nelson no no relation to the uh, country singer Willie Nelson uh, <laughs> having beaten Willie Nelson the different one he made his challenge for a rematch to Tyne which took place in July of 1786 in Croydon the fight was so short that after his easy victory Mendoza decided to provide some extra entertainment to the assembled crowds by racing some horses okay He's like yeah. he, he was a natural showman. He was like, to be honest, all these people are a bit pissed that they travelled all the way to Croydon and they got five minutes. I mean, you'd be pretty pissed if you travelled to Croydon now yeah. anyway. She's like, so watch me race these horses in the rain. I'll strip down <laughs> to me nethers. Come on. <laughs> Mendoza was now considered to be one of the best pugilists in Britain. Notwithstanding this, his former friend Humphreys continued to suggest that he was a cheat and he was a coward. He even, when he bumped into Mendoza in a pub, ripped his shirt to try and provoke him into a fight. Likely assuming that, as a relatively well-off white man as Richard Humphreys was, the police would take his side. But Mendoza, possibly for the first time in his life, was able to keep his anger in check. Uh, Well, it's the first time for everything, isn't there? Well, it may have been that he'd learned some self-control, or it may have been because he was already under contract for another fight that had been arranged by the Prince of Wales himself. Mendoza, yeah. the print He had been invited to meet with the Prince of Wales, who was a fan of the noble art of boxing, okay. had heard that there was this jolly good Jewish sort who was making a bit of a wave in the East End of London, and he wanted to see him in action, so he'd naturally arranged a, a prize fight. This prize fight was to be against Sam Martin, who was known as the Bath Butcher. <gasps> And do you know why they called him the Bath Butcher? Because uh, he's a butcher. And where do you think he hails from? Bath. You're correct on both counts, sir. Yeah. Again, the very literal uh, nicknames. Just winning out. Martin had recently lost to one Richard Humphreys. So it was an opportunity for Mendoza to prove that he was just as good as his rival. Yeah. On April 17th, 1787, in Barnet... A crowd of around 5,000 people turned up to see the bout. This was the first time that Daniel had fought on a stage, or prototype boxing ring, and it lasted half an hour before Martin could no longer come to the scratch after the 30-second break between rounds. Okay. In fact, he'd been beaten so severely that he needed to be carried from the stage at the end of the match. Ouch. This victory made Daniel a celebrity. A state of affairs that he kind of liked. Daniel absolutely loved being the centre of attention, so he used some of the winnings from this massive mega fight to open his own boxing school in London. which I allowed you were him... going to say Biscuit Factory! <laughs> oh, I mean, he should have done. That's what he should have done, but he opened a boxing school instead because it allowed him plenty of opportunity to engage in exhibition sparring while paying audiences would comment on how great he was. Yeah. Which, you know, is getting his ego stroked every single day. He couldn't resist. The term Ala Mendoza became shorthand for an argument settled via fists, which, again, you imagine Daniel absolutely loved. I mean, it's hardly shorthand, is it? Ala Mendoza. Well, it's a, a euphemism then, so it would be written mm. in the papers, you know, da, 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 and the two gentlemen settled the dispute, Ala Mendoza, with Lord oh, Fondleroy yeah. 
being the victor. And he's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm a shorthand for any kind of fist fight. That's cool. A month after the victory against Martin, Mendoza also gained a wife. Okay. His first cousin, yeah. Esther, who was the daughter of Daniel Mendoza, which was not confusing in any way. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, it his, was like one of his parents' siblings' Yes, his, his dad's brother... Who was also named the same as him. His dad's brother, who he was named for, Daniel Mendoza, had a daughter called Esther, who he then married. Okay. So, Fine. when they were walking down the aisle, Daniel Mendoza gave Esther away to Daniel Mendoza. <laughs> I can't cope. As no, part of the agreement Daniel made before the marriage, he promised he would not fight again for money unless it was a fight against Richard Humphreys. Okay. Which didn't seem likely as Richard Humphreys had announced his own retirement just a few months before. Okay. However, the scenario suddenly seemed much more likely when the two got into an argument at a pub in Epping called The Cock, where Mendoza apparently broke Humphreys' nose. <sighs> okay. Humphrey, I mean, yeah. yeah. Humphreys promptly unretired and demanded that they fought again properly, in a ring. So the two camps tried to thrash out a deal at another, less suggestively named pub, the Spread Eagle. <laughs> However, this devolved into another fight, though the second fight somehow whips became involved at one point. Okay. So the first time it was just... Why, where do you get whips brawl. from? Well, I'm guessing it's, you know horse whips from the carriages and stuff and somebody managed to find them and started whipping people but it's just not cricket is it you don't bring a whip to a fist fight why would you do that that's against the rules sir now probably realizing that further face-to-face meeting might escalate to guns being used the two men instead took to the newspapers to send a series of public letters to each other these were full of insults and counter insults and succeeded in stirring up public interest in the fight both men began training okay. in earnest for the fight, which was to take place in Odium. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Odium. Where is that? Hampshire. Oh, no, I don't know this place. Okay, well, it was going to take place on the 9th of January, 1788. Despite it raining heavily on the day, Humphreys insisted on wearing slippy silk slippers. <laughs> <laughs> and this appears to have contributed to the fact that in the first 20 minutes... Daniel put Humphreys on his back at least four times and drew blood from his nose. Okay. Daniel had Humphreys up against a railing and was looking to end the fight with a knockout punch when Humphreys' second, now former British champion Tom Johnson, stepped in and caught the punch. This should have ended the fight, being the equivalent of throwing in the towel in today's boxing matches. Okay. But the three judges conferred and decided to allow the fight to continue. This annoyed Daniel no end. Their, their argument was basically, normally a round ends when somebody falls to the floor. Yeah. And if the railing hadn't have been there, then Humphreys would have fallen to the floor. So technically the round should have ended there. So that's the kind of logic didn't. they used. But because yeah. there was this pesky railing in the way, he couldn't fall to the floor, which <sighs> meant you know that Tom Johnson was well within his rights to catch the punch. Yeah. The rules of prize fighting at the time just because I realise it's not like modern boxing, stated that a round would end when one of the men had fallen, and then both would have 30 seconds to come back to the scratch, which was a chalk line in the centre of the ring. Okay, so as long as they got back to that point, yeah, then they were still in the game. When one of the fighters could not come up to scratch, then the fight would be over, which is where the term, um, you know, up to scratch comes from, originally. Oh, okay, yeah, got you. Despite this rule... About 20 minutes into the fight, Humphreys decided that he could unilaterally pause the fight in order to change into different footwear. Mm, okay. A decision that the judges of the match allowed for some reason. So he had 30 seconds to come up to the scratch and he went, no, 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 just wait, I'm going to change uh, my socks. And they went, <laughs> oh, okay. It took him over 10 minutes to do this. So he's really milking it. All the while, Did he just want a rest? Is that he, the... the argument is he, he knew he was losing and he needed to have a rest and to unsettle Mendoza. And it definitely unsettled Mendoza because he spent the entire time protesting that the fight should be over. He's the winner. And he was getting more and more agitated. Yeah. And he was wasting a load of energy shouting like John McEnroe at these judges. The incident proved the key turning point in the fight. 
and after the restart, Humphreys managed to throw Daniel to the floor, which, again, throws were a legal move in bare-knuckle boxing at the time. Yeah. This managed to cut Daniel's forehead open and break his nose. Then two good punches, one to the neck and one to the kidney, had Mendoza coughing up blood. That didn't stop him, though. Mendoza fought on until he literally passed out and was carried from the stage. He had to be visited by a surgeon for a lacerated kidney and would take months to recover from the fight. Though he had lost the fight, the newspapers were full of praise for both men, describing it as the best boxing match ever fought. This meant that when Daniel began demanding a rematch, the public at large were very supportive of the idea. There was over a year of back and forth in the newspapers, which was mainly insults between the two men. Yeah. This was partially due to the time it was taken for Daniel to recover, but mainly because they could not agree on the terms of the rematch. <laughs> how many terms can there be? Well, th- there is how much um, of the gate each fighter is going to take. You know, the okay. winner gets what percentage, the loser gets what percentage, what stake has to be put up, who the seconds are going to be, who the referees okay. are going to be. There's all of these things that they're all arguing about. Yeah. But eventually, on May 6th, 1789 in Stilton of all places oh I do like a bit of cheese yeah well apparently after this fight the sales of Stilton went up based on this boxing match Yeah, Mendoza versus Humphreys 2 took place and it took place in a purpose built octagon Okay, a purpose built octagonal amphitheatre that could hold over 3000 spectators the two men had paid for its construction out of their own pockets because they knew how big a payday it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so... I'm still sad about the biscuits. I can't get over it, to be honest. Well, now he's not making biscuits. He's constructed, uh, you know, the first MMA octagon out of his own money so that he can beat the shit out of Richard Humphreys, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll pay for it because I don't want you to be able to escape. You you use some low down dirty tricks in the first fight, but now I'm going to make sure no one can get in to protect you when I've got you on the ropes. And the fight started almost identically to the first, with Mendoza pressing forwards and beating Humphreys around the ring. About half an hour in, Humphreys fell to the floor to avoid a blow, and to end the round to get a thirty second breather. Yeah. This action of throwing yourself to the floor to end a round had been specifically deemed illegal in the contract signed by both men. So it was a, a a bit of the dark arts of boxing at the time, is if you knew you needed some time or the guy was sort of all over you, you could throw yourself to the ground and then they'd be pulled off you and you get a 30-second break. Those but dirty little rascals. Because those. Mendoza had been accusing Humphreys of doing that in the first fight, they said, right, okay, we'll put in a stipulation that if anybody intentionally throws themselves to the ground, they automatically lose. And then okay, Humphreys yeah. threw himself to the ground. So Mendoza turned to his supporters with his arms raised, claiming victory. But Humphreys insisted that he had caught the punch on his arm as he was falling. So it was legitimate that he'd been knocked down, hadn't thrown himself down, and that the match should continue. Yeah. The argument over who was right lasted for over an hour (laughs) before the judges decided in Humphreys' favour and the fight was ordered to recommence. But I'm guessing with, like, thousands of people in the crowd who've been waiting for an hour by that point if if you'd had them hanging around for an hour and then you decided the fight was over there would have been a riot so i kind of they're gonna be furious aren't they they had to restart the match at that point this time however rather than shouting and screaming mendoza had been keeping calm and on the restart he stuck to his tactics knocking humphreys down twice more before humphreys again fell in order to avoid a punch and this time even Humphreys could not deny that he had lost, and he conceded graciously. I mean, it, for a bit, he conceded graciously. Because okay. after he'd had an evening to reflect on losing the fight, he went to the papers claiming that he'd been ill for some time prior to the fight, uh, and at one point he even claimed... And that's that, why he lost. Yeah, he even claimed mm. that he had experienced a paralytic stroke shortly before the fight. I mean, like, come on, mate. Like, just bow out, bow out gracefully. Well, you know, if I hadn't have had that stroke last week, I'd have beaten him. But, you know, it's not <laughs> my fault. He also said that the hour-long delay was because Mendoza had 
had to be convinced to continue because he was so scared of him. So okay. he tried to twist everything around. It's like, yeah, the, <sighs> the reason there was an hour is because Mendoza was in the corner crying and everyone had to convince him to fight me again. Mm, why can't they just let it drop? Like, Because it's all about bravado. It's all about saving mm. face. And it was clear that a third winner-take-all fight was needed. They both yeah. won one. They're both complaining about the one they lost. You need a third definitive fight. It's very much Fury versus Wilder. Yeah. You know, you need that third era yeah, ending yeah. fight. In the interim, Mendoza enjoyed the £1,000 he had made from his victory. And oh, ever-increasing yes. celebrity status. Signing his letters from this point on, PP, which stood for Professor Meaning. of Pugilism. So I don't him, even know what that means. He made what himself a mean? professor of boxing, essentially. He's like, I'm so good. I'm awarding myself a professor. Uh, do you know what? I might do that. He also published his own book, The Art of Boxing, which okay. quickly became the definitive work on the subject. So he was okay. merchandising good. now. He was trying to find other ways of making money. Oh, uh, yeah. The third and final fight with Humphreys took place on September the 29th, 1790, in Doncaster. Okay. Humphrey's tactic in this fight was to start fast. He began attacking immediately, pummeling Mendoza with blows and hoping to overpower him quickly. Mendoza absorbed the attacks, counterpunching with jabs and trying his best to conserve his energy. The fight appeared to be in the balance until an overzealous Humphreys overstretched himself and twisted his knee. This should have ended the fight, but Humphreys continued, hopping for around another 45 minutes before finally conceding defeat. Right, guys, just give it up. Give it up. Well, he later admitted that from that point he knew he'd lost, but he'd continued in the hope of some accident befalling Mendoza. So, oh, so, so long as I'm still right. standing, Mendoza might... It's fine, you know, yeah. One lucky punch, I might take him out. And he didn't want to admit defeat until he absolutely had to. This was the last time the two fought... And Humphreys retired from fighting, becoming a successful coal merchant and living out his days in luxury, an option that was clearly open to Mendoza as well, and should be where the story ends. Biscuit factory, biscuit factory, biscuit factory. No, unfortunately, Uh. despite his promise to his cousin wife, Mendoza, he continued his boxing career. And this was... Obviously obviously successful in what he does, like... Yeah, but the thing is, he continued even though there was a decline in the popularity of boxing. Okay. And because he got used to living the high life, there was also ever-increasing debt brought about by bad investments and his own gambling addiction. Yeah, well, that would do it, yeah. It's probably an injustice that it was only after the decline in public interest that Mendoza became British heavyweight champion by beating a man called William Waugh. Okay. And not only was he called war, but he had literally gotten off a murder charge a few years earlier. So he had killed a guy. He beat and him. he beat him? Yeah, he beat William War in two fights, in 1792 and 1794, which, after, because they were the two biggest fighters at the time, after those two, he had the title of British heavyweight champion bestowed on him. Yeah. So it was almost like by public assent at the time. It was just... In general, everyone sort of came to a collective agreement about who was the champion. And yeah. after beating this guy, they were like, yeah, I think Mendoza's finally there. But <laughs> After all of the popularity has gone, and yeah. he's a little bit older now as well. Yeah, he's a little bit older. He's got the gambling addiction. He's got all of these things like, well, you're world heavyweight, you know, you're British heavyweight champion. He's like, well, what what money comes with that? None. It's, a, it's an honorary title. Wanted, I just wanted to make biscuits. And in the end, he only kept the title for a year before losing in 1795 to John Jackson. Oh, so it was a very brief uh, time at the but top. He's, but he still did it. He still did it. Mendoza spent the next two decades travelling across the British Isles, giving exhibitions alongside theatre troops as a means of keeping debt collectors from the door. Okay. This was not always successful, as he had multiple stays in debtors' prisons all over the country. However, he was engaging and popular with the public, so he was always eventually able to make just enough to keep going. One idea he hit on to make extra money was to write his memoirs. The resulting work became the first sporting autobiography ever written, although the copy you can read today is a later edition um, from 1816. 
So the just... original cop, the original edition is lost. But he is this won't. the one where we think there's uh, like a lot of fabrications? Oh no, there, there clearly is a lot of fabrications. You can you yeah. can check it. It's it's an autobiography written from a person's point of view who's suffered many concussive brain injuries over the years. So you can't yeah, really well, that... blame him for being a bit woolly on the details. Yeah, well, boxing will definitely do that to you. Although in his autobiography, amazingly, after everything that happened with Richard Humphreys and all of the insults, the last paragraph he writes about him, he describes him as the best boxer and one of the nicest men he'd ever met. Ah. So the animosity well, kind of ended uh, with the final fight, as far as Mendoza was concerned, at least. Probably because he was well, the victor. It's easy to be gracious it? when you win. And he was an all right sort, really. Yeah. After I pummeled him into the ground, I thought, hmm, you're an you're uh, all right fellow. After I ruined his face. Yes. Humphreys now has to wear a mask, so he doesn't scare his own children. <laughs> and I thought... And yes. that's how plastic surgery was born. <laughs> Daniel's last fight took place on July 4th, 1820. Independence okay. Day. Daniel was 45. He was a bit older, a bit slower, and he lost to a bloke called Tom Owen. He'd been worn down by the constant hardship of life on the road, trying to eke out enough money to keep himself out of debtor's prison. And his enforced absenteeism from his family is likely to have contributed to the fact that three of his four surviving children had been transported to Australia for various crimes. (sighs) And when I say various, there was a wild variation so, okay, for example, his on. son had committed highway robbery. What? Yeah, it's fair enough. Transportation seems fair for highway yeah. robbery. While one of his daughters had stolen a handkerchief. I mean... But they both had tried to transportation. Gui- <laughs> do you reckon a- it was like gui- guilty by association? Do you I reckon d- that's what it was? I don't know if there was a particular prejudice against um, Jewish people in terms of the criminal justice system at the time. I mean, for highway robbery, he's lucky he didn't get hung. This is Georgian Britain, the bloody code, yeah, and he was a highway yeah. robber. That was he done well, but for the handkerchief thing, that seems a bit mean. Send her all the way over to Australia. I mean, it's a bit much, isn't it? It's a bit excessive. His cousin wife died, and Mendoza reportedly went blind in 1835 before dying in 1836. Though he had lived a hard life, and he'd never achieved his passion of becoming a biscuit maker. His reputation and his charisma, because he travelled all over the British Isles as part of his boxing show. And he'd spar, but he'd also um, show the audience the different boxing styles of all the other famous fighters. So he would show them the difference between Richard Humphrey's style and uh, the Taylor Tyne style and Tom Johnson's style. And he'd do sort of um, little comedy skits of all the different boxers. So he was very engaging. Yeah. He'd done a lot to change the public perception of Jews in Britain. Because the traditional well, yeah, thing was... yeah, because he was successful, wasn't he? So well, He was successful at sport, and at what was considered a very manly, very masculine sport, whereas the prevailing thing of, you know, the, the stereotyped Jewish person, your Shylocks, your, you know... Uh, what's Vegas? Yeah, that's from Mer- Merchant of Venice, isn't it, Shylock? Yes, this this kind of very covetous the bad the bad Jew he wasn't that he was handsome he was engaging he was charismatic he was somebody who'd go out on the lash and was a celebrity he 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 was one of the people he was one of the people Hmm. in 1890 in 1890 legislation was passed to allow equal citizenship rights to Jewish people Okay. Well, the males, because it was only 1890. Yeah. But yeah, that is how recent it is that, you know, we had Jewish people literally, legally, second-class citizens. Exactly 100 years later, in 1990, Daniel Mendoza was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Well, good. Good. He was one of the original people and of a minority... um, I believe he is the first um, Jewish person that we've covered on this. Whatever. Yeah, ever. I don't, I don't think this is episode 102. And I think it's it the is. first time that we have covered um, somebody who was Jewish. Do you think that's because a lot of people are just not written about on? It's just not a 
thing or you've just not got around to it yet and here we are not i'm not blaming you at all i I don't don't know why i think you know the fact that there was a huge 350 year gap in our history where we did not allow jewish people to be in the country yeah probably contributes to it but also the fact that like i'm saying you know 1890 was the first time that uh, jewish people were allowed to hold all of the offices in the country uh they were allowed to you know fully engage in public life that probably was a bit of a hindrance in terms of achieving so that is the story of daniel mendoza handy boxer failed biscuit maker hero of the east end of london and first uh even though it's an exaggerated uh version first sports publication biography potentially definitely the first sporting autobiography and how many of those do we see now how many of those have i read zero well they exist whether you've read them or not and the source like i said you couldn't trust daniel himself so the source the person who found the bits that were truly fact and not just daniel's fiction the book is called the fighting jew and it is written Mm -hmm. by win weldon who amazingly came across the story of Daniel Mendoza because he married into Mendoza's family. So he married a Mendoza and his wife told about her great-great-great-granddad, who was this uh, boxer in the Burnuckle age, and he was so engrossed in it and he felt that this, this guy was a trailblazer and needed to have his story told that he wrote the book. And it is... The chapters I really like are split into the fights. So you've got Martin, Humphreys 1, Humphreys 2, Humphreys 3, Squire Fitzgerald. We didn't even talk about (laughs) Squire Fitzgerald. I don't know who that chap is. My favourite one, not Belcher, because there was a a period of time where the press were hyping up that he was going to fight this guy called Belcher, and he never intended to. But you know how the press get. They're like, yes, yes. Any minute now, he'll be fighting Belcher. He's like, I'm not fighting Belcher. (laughs) Belcher. He's not in my league. I am Daniel Mendoza, British heavyweight Uh, champion. That's brilliant. The professor of the fine art of pugilism. I do not fight a Belcher. Thank you very much. (laughs) How very dare you. Maybe, maybe in my formative years, when I was but 14 and 15, I would have fought Mm. a Belcher. But now... (laughs) <laughs> I shall not. Mm. I said no, God damn it. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.